Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. This is your host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks, Lori LeBay. For those of you that are new to the show, I always just like to give people a little background on who Alzheimer Speaks is and, and why we were, we were created in the first place. Um, bottom line, Alzheimer Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And I got involved in this because my mom had dementia for 30 years, so starting in her mid-50s until she was 86. And I just felt such a great need to connect people uh, so that they didn't feel as lost as my family and myself did uh, during my mom's journey. So here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those diagnosed continue to live with purpose and enjoy uh, and enjoy the rest of their life. Um, together, I, I truly feel that we can um, really shift our dementia care culture by just, again, having these conversations, helping to remove the myths and even identify what is a myth and what is a stigma um, that creates such fear and uh, loss and isolation for not only those diagnosed, but family and friends and, and communities at large. At our core, we believe collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle. And I know it's working thanks to each of you and all of your likes and clicks and shares. You see, you have had a huge impact on raising um, Alzheimer Speaks profile by sharing our information. So I want to thank each one of you uh, for making us the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to Share Care and Dr. Oz. And I, and I would also like to ask for your continued support in raising awareness. So, you know, share with your Facebook friends. Um, Tweet out to your Twitter tribes um, and um, click and pass information on to those in your LinkedIn circles and, and Google circles. It's really important. The more information we can have out there, um, the more likely people who are in need are going to reach out and grab it. Um, because just by sharing, you're helping remove the stigma and let others know that they're not alone. We're all about giving hope, and um, I think we're doing a good job and, and in terms of supporting people dealing with this disease. If you're new to Alzheimer's Speaks, uh, check out our website. That's kind of our mothership where you can have access to not only the radio show but the blog, Dementia Chats webinars that we do twice a month on the second and fourth Wednesday. Uh, we just did one today. I haven't posted it yet. Uh, it, it is still rendering. Um, but that uh, Dementia Chats is where I actually interview people that have dementia. They are our experts. And the public and professionals alike are all um, invited to join us with that, or many people use them as educational tools afterwards. We also have a YouTube channel and free, free tools. So there's, there's all kinds of information. Just head to alzheimerspeaks.com to be able to get that information. Also, if you're listening and think, hey, you know what? I got a story. I, I have a product. I have a tool I'd like to share. Um, reach out to me. 
let me know what you're up to because all voices are welcome from those diagnosed to those who are personally caring for them, uh, business professionals uh, providing product services and tools. We've had authors and directors and musicians and advocates, a uh, little bit of everyone. So, so um, you know, know that you are included to have a voice as well. Now, before I introduce our guest today, I want to give a shout out to a couple of my colleagues here on Alive and Social. Um, the first one is a, a show called Apples to Apples, and it's a father-son team uh, that is just a lot of fun, the Apple Bombs. <laughs> and they they kind of banter back and forth about sports, and um, you can check check them out and see if it is really true if Fathers Knows Best. And their show is on Monday at 2.30. Um, and uh, everything on Alive and Social is also archived, so you can always listen later. The other show I want to um, give a shout-out to is Mortgages and BS. And there you'll find a lot of things about home ownership and financing, um, as well as just uh, they'll talk about uh, common events um, and current events that are, that are happening in our world. And their show is on Thursday at 4 o'clock. So check both of them out. Um, a couple other organizations that I like to uh, just give a shout-out to is one is the Purple Angel Project. If you're not familiar with that, uh, the Purple Angel is the new global symbol, which is inclusive of all dementias. And if you're in the U.S., you can go to Alzheimer's Speaks and go to our Initiatives and Projects page and find more information out about that. This is a, this is a symbol that costs you no money, takes very little time. It was started by a man uh, by the name of Norms McNamara over in the U.K., and Alzheimer's Speaks is just a launch pad for the U.S., um, and so we can get you that information. Another organization you might not be familiar with is Dementia Action Alliance. They've only been around about a year now, and uh, you can go to daanow.org, uh, but they are really about being person-centered and, and pulling some great resources uh, together as well. So let me go ahead and introduce our guest today. We are really lucky to have Dr. Richard Fenker with us, and he is a professor of psychology, an author, and inventor whose strength is really in designing and building complex internet systems to solve problems. And boy, we know that is the way of the world right now. Um, he also started a program called the Mind Partner Project, and you can find out more on that at mindpartner.org. And his work with communication and dementia really led to um, a tool called the Alzheimer's Cards, uh, which we'll have him talk a little bit about, and um, some related free apps as well. He's also the author of eight books, including The Long Moment, Communicating with the Alzheimer's Mind. Richard currently lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he was also recently awarded uh, for his role as leading technology expert. So welcome, Richard. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Lori. Well, thanks for joining us. I, I'm excited to, uh, to talk with you. Actually, Richard and I um, met just briefly um, on our work at the DAA. And so kind of small worlds, um, you know, how, how we connect with one another. So um, I always like to ask our, our guests to, to start out, you know, have you been personally touched by dementia, you know, with friends or family uh, yourself? We grew up very aware of dementia, in particular Alzheimer's, because my granddad had Alzheimer's. Okay. 
And as he aged, he ended up living in the small little town in Tennessee where we lived. So the, the whole family was quite aware of him. And then my dad, who was afraid to death of having Alzheimer's, ended up really planning his life around uh, protecting the family in case he did. Now, he fortunately did not. He lived to 90 and was healthy that whole time. Uh, recently, in the last 10 years, my aunt in the same family had Alzheimer's for about 10 years. Okay. And so we were all touched by her experience. She got Alzheimer's at age 92 and then lived to 103. Wow. <laughs> so she, she was quite a character, but the Alzheimer's stories, the consequences, the caregiving, all of that has rippled through my family for many, many years. Okay. Well, and that's a, you know, and it's rare when it hasn't touched a family, but it's always nice you just to give our audience a perspective, um, you know, if, you, if you've been personally touched in this. Can you tell me, um, you know, when you speak, you, you talk and describe that life with Alzheimer's um, is a parade. Um, when we know the Alzheimer's Association, that a diagnosis begins with the grieving process, which doesn't really sound, you know, very, very happy and very parade-like. Um, so why, why do you term it a parade? The parade was, for me, uh, a good metaphor for the concept of continuing to live a complete and, and joyful life. And a parade symbolized that. And to me, in my experience with Alzheimer's, and certainly with the negativity in the Alzheimer's community, the sense of wanting something opposite that, wanting something positive, was very, very strong for me. Uh, a year ago, I went to the international conference, Laurie in Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And there were about 2,400 presentations at the conference. Less than 10 of them were positive. And <laughs> 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 I, I, having very little experience within the Alzheimer's professional community, I walked around, listened to the talks, and when the conference was over, I was essentially in shock. And I came home saying to myself, why in the world are, are we so negative and why is this professional community so negative? Because if I had Alzheimer's or, or really any form of dementia, why wouldn't I want to live as much of a good life as I could? Mm -hmm. And so that started really the project that led to the, the current book, the Don't Rain on My Parade book. Uh -huh. uh, and it also helped me understand that people with dementia, particularly in the early stages, need to make a choice. And, and we need to help them make that choice to to live a positive life and to live a life that's as full as possible. I so agree. I um, I'm kind of shocked. Out of 2,400, only 10 were positive spins. That's that really saddens me. I I thought there was a little more progression, but I have not been to international conferences, and I, I know even here in the states, um, there's just so much humdrum and you know um, doom and gloom in terms of living with the disease, and, and that just drives me bananas because I think that there's a lot of good life um, to be had, but people have to um, 
have to know it's possible and then have to be able to believe it. And, uh, I, you know, I see that even in advocacy um, in terms of trying to make change. People go, oh, you can't do that. It'll never work, you know. And it's just like, why, why do we always go down the rabbit hole first, you know, instead of just trying and, and believing. So um, I'm, a, I'm excited um, to have this conversation with you today, and it's always fun to talk with people who, who do believe um, and have a passion uh, to make the world a better, a better place. Can you tell us, um, you know, about your book, um, Don't Rain on My Parade? Um, why did you decide to write that, and, and what will people find in that book? When I came back from Copenhagen, I, I was overwhelmed with the negativity, and the feeling I had was, uh, where is the positive source for, for people with Alzheimer's? Mm-hmm. What, what's the good news? I've heard, I've heard the bad news. So I came back and I began to talk to the people I live in Santa Fe, as you mentioned. I began to talk to the professionals here who work with uh, Alzheimer's dementia folks in the different facilities in Santa Fe. And they said, well, we, we have to agree with you. It is pretty negative. And then my aunt's experience, who she lives in Florida, uh, it was very negative. Even though she was in a quite good facility, there was really nothing positive to be said about Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So I began to say to myself, what, what's wrong with this picture? Why in the world? since we, to a large degree, create reality with our minds, why in the world are we creating a reality for people with Alzheimer's that's so negative? We don't have to do that. Yeah. So this, this started, Laura, the process of working on the book. Now, the book that will come out in February is actually the fifth version. Uh-huh. <laughs> I... Uh, Wrote it and then uh, didn't like it. I wrote it as a fiction book to start with and didn't, didn't like it and then went through a number of changes. And this last version speaks directly to individuals with dementia. Uh-huh. And it's the first version that seemed to really have heart for me and then seemed to basically be able to say in simple words, if you want to, you you have a choice now, no matter how old you are, and there is a way to get a lot of good living left, even with Alzheimer's and even with dementia. The, the, the world is not going to do it for you. The world is not going to come and embrace you and love you because you have dementia. The world doesn't understand you. you you're going to have to help here yourself to make this process work, and the book becomes kind of a guide for that. Okay. Do you, by chance, know Yuta Lugvig in Santa Fe? She does. Of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uda is a good friend, and uh, Uda was my one of my wonderful advisors who helped me write the first book. Okay. And and so I've been to many of her uh, Alzheimer cafes. Uh huh. And it was Uda who connected me with Karen Love. Okay. So it is a small world. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's she's a doll. I just love her and, and the work that she's doing and stuff. And I thought, oh, I, I didn't ask you that before, so I'm going to just shoot that in there now. So, <laughs> well, well, that's You great. know, I have a section in my book on communication 
that uh, a lot of it really comes from uh, Uda's little book on uh, Alzheimer's caregiving. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, getting back, um, you know, to your book and um, in some of your beliefs, what choice does one need to make to really live a complete and joyful life with, with dementia? How do they get there? The big choice is really to not be passive. When a physician gives someone a diagnosis, especially a diagnosis like dementia or Alzheimer's, that's a pretty heavy hit. And when along with that diagnosis comes the words, well, we really don't have a cure, I really don't have any medicine that's going to impact it significantly, uh, I'm sorry. That's tough to live with. So the choice a person with dementia has to make is to not be passive, to say, I'm not going to get locked into the world's version of what dementia represents. I'm not going to get locked into the fear associated with the Alzheimer's community. See, I think, you know, I think you, of course, understand this, Lori, but I think basically the Alzheimer's community uses fear as a fundraising vehicle. Yep. And, and this concept of the longest day and the things that we, we publicize associated with Alzheimer's, well, those are all negative things. So if you have a diagnosis, the choice you have to make basically is to say, I don't give up. I want to go on. I know I'm going to have dementia, but I want to get as much out of life as I can for the rest of my life. And the thing that makes that work, and the book, of course, addresses this in many different chapters, in many different ways, is reality is not a fixed thing. It's not something like a piece of concrete that's simply lying there waiting to be stepped on or, or uh, used to build with. It's extremely malleable, and a lot of reality is really a function of what we say to ourselves about the world and the visions of the world we create in our mind. And so what I was trying to do in the book is point out that choosing the alternative, that I want to live a full life, also means that you open up many new paths for the world to help you and support you live that life. Okay, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, just in talking with people with dementia, um, like my, my experts on dementia chats, I mean, they, they all firmly believe that you do have to become an advocate. You have to, you have to get involved. You have to make a difference. You have to tell people why um, it's important that people still are valued and, and respected and included in society. And... Um, as, as easy as that sounds, that, that's not always a real easy job to be heard uh, when there's a lot of um, preconceived ideas of who you are or what you are when people start seeing you as a disease and, and not as a person anymore. And, uh, you know, it's just um, powerful roles that these people with dementia um, are really playing to, to shift the culture and to change mindsets out there. <clears throat> but care partners can do that as well by having everyday conversations and 
you know, a simple thing. I'm going to give a plug for the Purple Angel Project is to get involved with that and just have that, you know, if it's in your email signature on your Facebook page or if you own a company and your marketing materials, again, it costs no money, but it's really just about getting people to ask, what is it? So that you can have a non-fearful um, comfortable conversation about something that needs to be talked about. And it's just, it's so, so important. So I'm glad you've, um, you're including that in your book. Um, what do, what do people with, with Alzheimer's and dementia want? You know, when you're out there talking with them, what's, what's going on inside their mind? And, um, you know, what have they told you? I have to confess, I have a a weak voice there and that I'm not a dementia professional. But what I did in, in writing the book was try to immerse myself in the voice of people who have dementia who have written about it. Mm-hmm. And so there are wonderful people like Richard Taylor, who really is a hero in my mind, who uh, he and Gregor Bryan and others do a great job of kind of describing the process that's going on in their minds. But, thing that I can see, first of all, is that very few people give up a normal life without a fight. Uh, a, a dementia diagnosis and even the negativity of the dementia community don't send much people into, most people into despair. There's a grieving process, but once they move through that grieving process, there's a real strong desire to go on living where things begin to break down for most people, and this gets back to your question of what they want, where things begin to break down is that throughout the process, the world, and and by the world I mean caregivers, I mean friends, I mean uh, physicians, the world doesn't do a very good job of supporting what the person with dementia needs. And so as you were pointing out, it's all too easy to quickly forget that this individual is a person. It's all too easy to quickly stereotype them. Because not just with dementia, but with stroke, with almost any disease that interferes with speech, we tend to stereotype and we we tend to think of them as not intelligent or with reduced intelligence. So that whole combination of things that basically puts people down who have dementia and then continues to put them down through stereotyping, through our own insecurity in dealing with them, through the lack of practical and technical resources just to to care for them properly. All of those things put a person with dementia in a terrible spot. The number one thing I concluded from from reading the stories of people who have dementia is that they don't want a caregiver. They they want someone with them for the rest of their life who's an ally. Mm-hmm. They want a friend. And these roles of caregiver, parent, child, while they're useful in a limited way, are are not useful for the whole journey. In, in fact, they begin to confound the journey with the needs of that partner. So a, a caregiver role begins to take on the characteristics of a parent, for example. 
And uh, this is where some of the behavior that sees people with dementia as childlike comes from. If you didn't feel like you had to be a caregiver or a spouse, if you felt like my role is really to be your advocate and your ally in the strongest sense, wherever you are, that I think is stronger. So that's one thing they want. The second big thing they want is to be respected during the whole period they have Alzheimer's as an adult. Now, you, you know this from your own work and your shows and, and all the things that you've done. If I have dementia, I'm always an adult, and I don't want that sense of being an adult to ever go away because my behavior in Earth language and Earth reality terms doesn't look adult-like. I haven't changed inside that much. I need your help, but I'm not a child. And so that's, that's the second thing I could see in every blog and every book and every story from someone with dementia is that that respect as an adult is so terribly important. Well, the last thing, I have a list of about a dozen things in my book, but the last thing I'll mention, which is a big one because it underlies so many behaviors that matter, is that if I have dementia, I want you to absolutely respect my reality, not try to change it, not try to bring me back into uh, normal Earth reality, not, not try to do anything except join me in my reality, come to me in that reality, and do your best to understand me. Mm -hmm. Those three messages appeared over and over and over again in the stories of people with dementia writing about their lives. Yeah, I, I would agree um, on all three of those, uh, on all three of those points. And um, I look forward to being able to, to uh, see the rest of your book. Um, now, is, is the book currently out or is it launching here shortly? If you can. <laughs> it's in my, uh, it's in the final editing stages. Okay, that's what I thought. And, okay. And I'm holding my breath waiting for the editor to get it back to me so I can get it to the proofreader and then finally to the printer. Okay. That's what I thought and I'm like, "Oh, I talked to so many people. I'm just going to ask again and <laughs> make sure." So how how do people get a hold of you and your and your book? The uh, easiest way is through the Mind Partner site, mindpartner.org. Or you can communicate directly with me at uh, rich at richardfinker.com. Okay. Okay. And do you have kind of a guesstimate on when the book will be ready? It looks to me like it will get to the printer late in January. That's my best guess now after it comes back from the proofreader. Okay. It'll take about three weeks to get the printed copies ready. So it looks to me like late in February is the best guess of the date, Laurie. Okay. Well, sounds good. I just like to uh, let our listeners know on that if they're interested in the book. And can people do a pre-order at all with that? Do you have anything set up for that or just wait until, until it actually is uh, hot off the presses? You know, you could go to the uh, Alzheimer's Card site or the, the Mind Partner site 
and do a pre-order. I think the book is set up with a price on that, and so that would certainly be possible. Okay. Okay. Well, sounds good. Um, let me ask you a few other questions here. Um, when it comes to you know preparing for this journey with dementia, are there are there like positive steps that someone can take who's recently diagnosed, or um, is it different for every every person diagnosed and their care partner? Well, of course, every person is different and has a lot of individual needs, but there seem to be a few things that everybody needs. And in the book, I, I gave each one a short chapter. Uh, the, the biggest things I see are everyone needs a team associated with them. Now, in the book, I use the words caregiver team. The more I thought about it, basically, I, I could almost take the caregiver role away and just say, hey, I need a team of allies. Some of them are obviously caregivers. But I, but I need that team to be with me through the whole process, and I'm going to build that team now. What, what I was trying to do there was I was trying to get away from this crushing sense that so many individual caregivers have that I'm, I'm stuck. I'm, I'm the primary caregiver. I'm going to be living with this person for the next uh, seven or eight or nine years, and the whole burden is on me. And as you know, of course, that's extremely stressful. I think there were 180 billion air, uh, hours of free caregiving donated last mm -hmm. year. And uh, along with that came an enormous amount of financial stress, personal stress, and so forth. So getting started with a team early in the process and having some young people on that team who understand technology, I think, is a big deal. I, I would agree. I would definitely agree on that. Um, one of the things, and, and I don't know if you've considered this or not, um, but it's something that I talk about a lot, and I know many others do too, but trying to get people to shift away from even the word caregiver and going to care partner or care companion so it's more relationship-based versus um, caregiver, you know, we, we tend to make it about tasks and things we have to do instead of really um, caring for the soul and the, and the person at heart there. And um, again, I don't know if that's, uh, if, if that's something you've ever considered or would consider, but I think that in terms of when you said, you know, you don't really even need that word caregiver there, I just need to build a team that's going to support me. You know, that's what we all really want. And to me, that's getting back to the core of, of relationships again. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And, as I finish the book, I, I have in there a number of things that come from sort of a professional caregiving community. You know, what I can say to you is I think we relate to people with Alzheimer's in three ways. I think the common relationship, which is uh, through most of the world and to a large degree through a lot of the Alzheimer's community, is pretty superficial. Mm -hmm. This is the relationship where I don't really understand the rules for uh, how to work with you because you have Alzheimer's. I don't know what to say when I'm with you, so I'm quiet. I don't know how to deal with your frustrations. So there's a whole level of communication that takes place at that sort of superficial, not working very well level. 
the, the second level is the professional level. And this is where we see uh, people like Uda who write books on how you, you deal with people in different stages of Alzheimer's, how you, and they create rules for uh, how you communicate with them. You, you never contradict. Uh, you're always positive, and there's a whole bunch of other things you do. So that's very helpful. But those, to me, tend to be caregiving rules. Those are rules that say we have a structured relationship, and in this relationship, I'm kind of an earth reality, you have dementia, and I need to follow these rules to uh, get along with you. While that's extremely valuable, because it's badly needed, it also is not the deepest level of relating to these folks. If, if I'm that person with Alzheimer's, I'm begging you, and this is where you were going, I think, Laurie, I'm begging you to be real with me. I'm begging you to be my ally. I'm, uh, if, I have, if I was injured in a fire and I have half of my face is damaged, you know, I'm, I'm looking for that person who comes up to me and says, man, what happened to your face? It looks awful. I want that dose of reality that goes one step beyond being nice to me all the time, that goes one step beyond never contradicting me. I want that engagement that can hurt me at times because it's getting closer to me and it's getting closer to my reality. It's trying to understand my reality. If you read folks like Richard Taylor, over and over and over again, he's basically saying, please, will somebody quit trying to take care of me, quit trying to take, make decisions for me, quit trying to assume I don't know how to make, uh, take, you know, do things for myself, let me make mistakes. Let me live. Mm -hmm. I think that third level of communication is something that we, we really don't understand very well, but I think it's the heart you're talking about when you speak about people with Alzheimer's and what they need. Yep, I, I agree. Now, um, you talk about Alzheimer's and dementia is not an all or nothing. You know, there's a big range in terms of, of territory for individuals to be able to find hope and, and to improve their quality of life. And you mentioned in the book that people can have um, brain damage um, but yet live fairly normal lives and um, show, um, and some show few traditional you know, symptoms at all. How, how can that even be possible? I know that there's going to be people out there asking, well, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> Explain that one to me. You know, the, the edges here began to tickle me as I read the research reports two years ago at the Copenhagen Conference, read the uh, studies that were, uh, I was in Washington this year for the uh, conference in the U.S., and then began to read the literature on Alzheimer's. Well, it is not all or none. And the, the most fascinating studies, I thought, come from the religious order study research. And I'm sure you've heard of this, but essentially the uh, research followed a group of about 1,500 nuns who agreed to uh, be tracked mentally for the rest of their lives and then also donate their brains after death so people could see what kinds of conditions and circumstances impacted the brain. 
Well, when they started doing the study and the first set of nuns began to decease and they began to analyze the brains, they discovered that uh, a decent percentage of these nuns who showed up normally on cognitive testing had advanced Alzheimer's disease. And so all of a sudden, within the scientific literature, there was a, a bit of grumbling and a, and a real change in thinking around the concept of what's possible with Alzheimer's in the right environment and social circumstances. And out of this research came the concept of resilient aging, which is a very important concept. It basically says some people, because of lifestyle, because of brain chemistry, because of things we don't understand, have a way of aging that doesn't seem to diminish their functioning. And even though they may be clinically ill, they may have Alzheimer's disease or they may have other disorders, they don't appear to have much of a problem because their body and their mind is resilient. The, the simple version of that is this concept of redundancy where some parts of the brain can take over functions of other parts of the brain when they stop working. Resiliency is much broader. It basically says there's a way to live a life that, that is full and complete and joyful even when biologically you shouldn't be able to do it. When, when physically you've got Alzheimer's disease and yet you're not behaving like you do. So what that told me, and this gets back to the territory idea, is that there's really a wide territory here between normal, whatever that means, and people who have Alzheimer's or any other form of dementia. And the room in that territory is vast as far as your potential to live different kinds of lives based on the concept of resiliency and based on the things you do to take care of yourself, the things that you do to kind of believe that you have a choice, all the things that I was describing in the book. Okay. Are, are you familiar with that research, Laurie? Is that something that's come up on your show before? Yep, the Nun Study, yeah. Yeah, um, very powerful um, and very interesting. You know, there's a, there's a few of them out there. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do believe um, it's a very important study. And uh, I think there's very few people that haven't heard of it. You know, and if you haven't, you know, just Google it. You'll just Google the Nun Study and you'll find it. Um, out there, but um, yeah, it, it's it's nice when they um, they committed to doing this, you know, all all their life, and, and I mean, they just got great, phenomenal research out of it, uh, which was uh, fantastic. So, you know, we'd like to see more people get involved in this type of research, this long term research, um, to be able to give us some data on that. Um, the you know resiliency part um do you think uh, and and again this is just uh you know your thoughts on here so um do you think their resiliency in terms of living life to the fullest um was deepened due to their faith based um situation in terms of being nuns 
I think resiliency uh, certainly ties to some degree to genetic factors. Although the research on aging is suggesting really that maybe that's less than 30 percent. It's sort of ties to behavioral and environmental factors. And, and, and I'm taking dancing lessons right now, Laurie, for crews uh-huh. that we're going on in a few weeks. And I have to laugh because if you look at the research on aging, and this is with a very large population of people who were studied over a long period of time to see what factors help them age in a healthy way, most things don't matter. Mental activity, physical activity, there's a little bit of relationship, but not much. The one thing that stood out in this research, and if you do this one thing, you have a 76% chance of being uh, healthy in in your later years, was dancing. Have you heard that research before? Um, yeah, and that doesn't um, necessarily res- um, surprise me just because I think, you know, you're using multiple portions of the brain and, and kind of rewiring and and just all of the uh, the research now with music and, you know, the power behind that. So, um, yeah, I find it really interesting. And then, you know, with dancing, then you have the human connection on top of that. Um, which as we age, typically, you know, they say lessons. And so, you know, you've, you've increased um, a, a lot of different variables, you know, all, all kind of wrapped into one. You know, the whole package there, real quickly, seems to involve a combination of meditation, singing, dancing, a decent social life, physical activity, uh, practicing verbal skills, crossword puzzles are, are work best, a nurturing environment, security, that package, strangely enough, fits to a large degree what the wives of many of the nuns in the study were, were like. Okay. Well, that, uh, yeah, fair, fair, that is interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit, too, about how a person's individual personal history or life story can add quality of life uh, during the, the process of dementia? One of the biggest losses in dementia, because of the disconnect between short-term memory and what's happening in the mind uh, long-term, is the loss of personal history. So I can't go back and recover those memories, bring them into the present, and use them in any kind of practical way. The value of a personal history is a way to guide explaining who you are, what you like, how you might be communicated with or how you might communicate, what brings you joy, all of those things, when it's lost, complicate and, and take value away from your life in the moment. The importance of that personal history is, uh, you know, I can't describe it. If you, if you had gone to the Alzheimer's conference, you see there are a number of people who have products to save parts of it, to save the, uh, your life story. 
so that those who are caring for you later in life can see that story and relate to you. There, there are a number of things like that. What I could see and, and what got me started on the importance of personal history was that we don't use our minds, particularly our memories, in, in the same way today that we did for many years. We, we, when we have Google and we have other kind of resources today through the Internet, we don't save things in our minds like we used to. And, and in a sense, we're completely different human beings because of this technology. The question I ask, and this comes back to the, the problem or the issue with personal, personal history, the question I ask is, why couldn't we do for people with dementia and their memories and their personal history what Google has done for our memories and our use of memory as normal folks? Um, if you have access to your personal history, it has value in supporting you throughout the dementia process. And this is important early on because it helps shape things like communication and caregiving. It's extremely important later on when you're unable to communicate because it reminds people of who you are and it also gives them a chance to provide you with uh, moments of joy. Okay. I kind of rambled through that. I hope that was clear enough for you. <laughs> no, that's, no I, I think uh, the life history is really important in terms of connecting and reminiscing and um, and things. So, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, in your book, you also describe the program called Mind Partners um, that uses technology. Can you tell us, we don't have time to talk in depth about Mind Partners today, but can you tell our audience a little bit about Mind Partners? I'd, I'd be happy to. Mind Partner grew out of the personal history concept. And uh, once again, as a technology person, I, I work with technology every day. I uh, write computer programs for the Internet to do different things. I came away from the conference in, in Copenhagen a couple of years ago looking around and, and saying, well, wait a minute, there, there is no technology or there's very little technology being applied to people with dementia. The, all of the tools that even a teenager has today to, to communicate, to stay in touch, to deal with locations, all of those tools, for the most part, don't exist within the dementia community. When I couple that concept of needing technology for dementia with the concept of personal history, it dawned on me that during the Alzheimer's journey, more than anything else, I need an ally, an ally that saves and has access to the personal history that I've lost because my short-term memory and then to a degree my long-term memory are no longer working. I need that ally to remind me of who I am, what I know, what I like. I need that ally to remind others around me about those same things. So the mind partner concept was a concept designed to say, 
if I had a companion mind, and that companion mind was really just my mind, it just had the content of my mind and the history in my mind, and I used that companion mind as it might help me throughout the Alzheimer's process, that would be very, very valuable. And I'll give you a couple of simple examples of that to make that concrete. How would you use it? I mean, that's a good question. Well, in today's language, you would take that companion mind, you would take content in that mind, and you would do specific things with it. You would create programs, probably called apps, that would serve the person with the dementia. The Alzheimer's cards were a, a set of cards I created a couple of years ago to help people with dementia communicate things that were on their mind when they were having trouble forming words to say what they wanted to say. The Alzheimer's cards are also an app that comes with MindPartner. So within MindPartner, I can take things that are important to you because of your personal history, important to you because they represent preferences that you, that you like, put those not in a set of cards, but put those in a program that you have access to at any one moment in time to help you communicate. A second great real example, the Alzheimer's cards and the app is already available. A second great example comes from Samsung. They recently created an app which they demoed at the international conference, although nobody was watching. And the app works like this. If uh, you're the individual with dementia, you're wearing a mobile phone device. Probably it's just a mobile phone in your pocket. When any family member or friend walks in the building, the mobile phone makes an announcement to you that Aunt Betty or Uncle George or uh, your husband Bill has walked into the building. Now, from a technological perspective, that's very simple to do because the device is simply tracking the locations of those people. And when any one of these individuals comes into the building or comes close enough to be recognized, the mobile phone basically makes that announcement. But that's another great and simple example of how something in your life, something in your personal history, your family members, can be connected to you in real time using technology to help you. Okay. Great. Well, that is, uh, that's wonderful to hear. Um, one last question, because we're starting to run out of time here, uh, that I wanted to ask you was, what are some things that will help a person with early to mid stages live life to the fullest with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia? There are a few quick things that you can do, and I've got a chapter in the book on each of these. One is to focus time in moments. You, we live in moments, we don't live in days or weeks or years. And by focusing on moments, you, you give yourself to have a chance to have a lot of quality, good moments. The, the second you mentioned earlier, which is this concept of personhood. You're a person, you're always going to be a person, you'll never doubt that, but that becomes something which is hard in an Alzheimer's context 
for caregivers and others to always recognize. There's a chapter in the book on how to train your family members to respect your personhood. And I think that's a big thing that can help in the early middle stages. Third quick thing is a bucket list. I don't care how old you are, why wouldn't you be looking forward to doing some very concrete things in your life that are fun that you might like to do? Uh, a fourth thing very quickly is this concept of letting go. If you have dementia, at some point you have to begin to let go the rules of the everyday world, the ego kind of striving that we all work for in the everyday world. You have to let it go and have to live with yourself as a person with dementia. And so the, the guidelines for how to do that, the importance of doing that, I describe that in the book. Communication is another huge one. And, and this is where uh, some of Uda's work is so valuable. You're going to be communicating all throughout the Alzheimer's process. And the issue with communication is not you so much, it's with other people. So you have to train others how to come to you and how to communicate with you. And then finally, one core theme in almost every blog, almost every book by someone with Alzheimer's, is the need for comedy, humor, a sense of reality in life. And bringing that sense of humor in as early as possible, you know, educating your caregivers so that they understand how to, to laugh with you, uh, and, and not take things so seriously. It's, it's very, very important. Okay. So that's my short list. Okay. Well, great. I really appreciate your time today, Richard. And um, people can uh, find Richard by going to a couple of different websites. One is mindpartner.org, mindpartner.org. And the other is the Alzheimer's, and that's with an S, cards. Uh, both are plural, www.alzheimerscards.com. Um, and look for his his book coming out. Um, and you're thinking it'll be um, probably mid to late January. Is that what you were thinking, Richard? Mid to late February. Mid to late February. Okay. And the name of the book, again, is uh, Don't Rain on My Parade. Uh, so that'll be available on Amazon, I would imagine, and through your website? That's exactly right. Okay. Well, great. Um, any last comments that you want to share with our audience? No, I appreciate very much the chance to be on your show today, Lori. Oh. And uh, I you know, look, look forward this year to uh, getting the first version of Mind Partner out. We'll be testing it this year. And it, it's free. So if anybody would like to join us for our early test of the Mind Partner program, please contact me. We'd love to sign you up. Okay. Wonderful. Well, sounds great. Thank you again so much for your time today. I so appreciate uh, all the wonderful information that you were able to share with us. Um, for those of you that missed our last show, we had author Lisa Skinner on with us, and she uh, talked about her book, Not All Who Wander Are Lost, which was a really interesting conversation 
Next week on the 29th, we're going to have Suzanne Rabus with us, and she's going to talk about brain injuries from a real personal aspect and what it was like to have uh, issues um, for herself and um, how she, you know, she was lucky enough to recover. Hers wasn't uh, um, a dementia per se, but yet symptoms were similar, and so she can really share what it was like and how it affected uh, not only her but her relationships as well. Uh, today on Dementia Chats, uh, we talked about uh, Barry uh, Pankhurst, who was an advocate living in Indonesia, who was diagnosed with the disease, who just passed away, and the effects um, it has when someone in the Alzheimer's and dementia community passes, how how it affects their their friends who are diagnosed as well, and how they how they deal with those losses. Um, so that was an interesting conversation. We will have our um, next Dementia Chats on uh, January 12th, and that will be on the Zoom platform, which is a much easier platform than uh, the Adobe Connect that we've been using for years. So looking forward to that switch. Uh, let's see. I want to also give a shout-out um, to a couple of uh, states. I'm going to be previewing uh, His Neighbor Phil, the new dementia film, uh, out in Seattle in February, and I will be in Texas in May and possibly actually in February as well, and then several screenings here in Minnesota. And you can just reach out to me to find details on that, or maybe you're interested in hosting a screening. I'd, I'd uh, love to uh, come to your state as well and not only share the film but additional uh, educational information as well. If you haven't read the article called Rummaging, uh, uh, Interpreting Behaviors to Provide Meaning and Purpose um, in the Lives of Loved Ones with Dementia, it's just, you know, people have just felt that it's a phenomenal article. It was written by Jennifer Brush, and she's with Brush Development. Um, in fact, she's got another new book coming out here shortly. But she just always has fabulous insights, so I would encourage you to, to check that out. Um, in the meantime, if you want to join the Purple Angel Project, go to alzheimerspeaks.com. Go to our initiative and projects page, and you'll see the tab there. I'd be more than glad to get you information on that. Uh, have a fabulous holiday, and we will talk with you soon. Bye now. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.